0: Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com.
1: Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers to humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled to be back in the studio with you again this week. Well, last week we aired the first part of a Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek. The Q&A was recorded at our recent Engage 2018 conference. The Engage conference was an apologetics conference that we did in partnership with Hoffmantown Church. Dr. Gary Habermas was our keynote speaker. He did an incredible job talking about the evidence for the resurrection. We also had Dr. Craig Blomberg talking about some of the evidence for the New Testament manuscripts, Dr. Michael Brown talking about social issues, Dr. Craig Evans talking about some exciting archaeological discoveries, and even Dr. Frank Turek talking about a host of other apologetical issues. I decided to air the Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek because many people thought it was particularly engaging. He's always a dynamic speaker. I think that those of you that tuned in last week for the first part of this Q&A uh, would agree with that statement. And for all of you listening today, I hope that you're excited to hear from Dr. Frank Turek again. So this is the second part of the Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek. You could get the first part at Godsolutionshow.com. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Turek. He's the president of crossexamined.org. Again, cross cross examined. He's also the host of an hour-long TV program each week called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That is named after his and Geisler's book of the same title. He's written numerous other books, and he is an incredible speaker. You can find out more about him at crossexamined.org. Again, crossexamined.org. He's a dynamic speaker, and he's somebody that I've enjoyed interviewing in the past on this show, And I'm excited to share with you the Q&A from our conference with Dr. Turek again this week. So here's part two. We're picking up. Dr. Turek is talking about the problem of evil and the moral argument. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of what he says in this Q&A. In fact, I had a debate with Michael
0: Shermer not long ago, and he kept saying, well, how do you get at this? How do you get at this, uh, this moral code you're talking about? You know, how do you know right from wrong? I said, Michael, I don't know why you're asking that question. You already know right from wrong. Why are you asking how I know right from wrong? I said, you don't even need the Bible to know right from wrong. It's written on your hearts. The question isn't whether or not you can know right from wrong. Everyone can know it, whether or not they have a Bible, whether they're a Christian or not. The question is, what is rightness? What What is justice ontologically? And I said, you ought to be asking yourself that question, Michael, how you can know it. Because if you're just a molecular machine, if you're just a moist robot, because he's a materialist, if you're just a molecular machine, why should you believe anything you think, including the thought that loving somebody's good and hating somebody's bad, including the thought that atheism's true? I mean, if you're just a molecular machine, why should you believe anything you think? So atheists have to steal from God to even make sense of their position. They have to steal a moral standard from God to try and say that Christianity is immoral, they have, to stay, they have to steal reason from God to say they're much more reasonable. How can they be reasonable if they're just molecular machines, if we're all just moist robots? There's, there is no such thing as reason. We're just reacting. We're no different than a Coke can fizzing. I mean, what's the point? Right. There's no free will in that sense. All right. There's no free will, but there's, yeah. there's, no, there's no immaterial reality. Right. So and you- justice, which is not made of materials, doesn't exist then. I mean, think about this. I always ask atheists this question. I say, how much carbon is in the justice molecule? And they go, well, that's kind of a... What do you mean, carbon? Well, you're a materialist, yet you believe in justice. So what is justice materially? And They have no answer. Why? Because it's not a material thing. It's an immaterial thing. Which is telling me and should be telling them that materialism's false. Because there's a lot of things that are immaterial that we all know exist. Justice is one of them. Love is another thing. The laws of logic. These are all immaterial things that we traffic in every day and atheists just take for granted. They have to steal from God in order to try and say he doesn't exist. And you cover a
2: lot of this material in your latest book, correct? Stealing from God, is that right? Yeah,
0: Stealing from God, this one right here.
2: So if you're interested in that, pick that up. Okay.
0: And by the way, there's a, there's even an online course you can take, again, on this class as well. One of the unique things about the courses that we teach is uh, we get the instructors to come on live via Zoom and answer questions, much like we're doing now. So Gary teaches one of the classes, and when we run his class again this fall, Gary will come on on three occasions and answer questions. Um, and, and I do the same thing, so does uh, Dan Wallace and other other instructors, they come on and answer questions live, which makes it a lot of fun.
2: Wonderful. So you mentioned uh, the Muslims uh, in your last answer, I think at the beginning, a question about them is, how would you explain the Trinity to a Muslim?
0: I would explain the Trinity the same way that uh, they explain the Quran, because a Muslim will say the Quran is eternal, which means there's something independent of God their monotheistic version of God that they think exists eternally. Um, Well, why are you putting partners? The the big sin in Islam is called shirk. That means you're putting partners with God. You're putting a book along with God. You're saying that the book exists eternally just like it exists, um, just like uh, God exists. Well, it's kind of ironic when you think about it that in... in, uh, Muslims will say, well, you know, God can't become man. That's blasphemous. But they're basically saying God became a book, (laughs) became the Quran. Um, Also, I think you have to try and ask Muslims what they think the Trinity is, because I asked an imam once, I said, what do you think the Trinity is? He said, well, the Trinity is God having sex with Mary to give us Jesus. That's what he thought the Trinity was. And so... If he has a false belief about what the Trinity is, then he's probably not going to believe it's true. I I don't believe that's true, right? You know, tell me about the Trinity. That's your concept of the Trinity? Well, I don't believe that concept either. So I would point out a couple of things. I would also point out that the Trinity, three persons in one divine essence, actually solves problems rather than creating them. Why? Because if God is eternal and he is, how could there be love if he was a strictly monotheistic being? There's nobody to love before there was a creation, right? But God was uh, perfectly loving because he was in the Godhead. He had a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit, three persons in one divine essence. So there was a lover, a loved one, and a spirit of love from all eternity. God did not have to create because he was lonely or anything. He, He had perfect fellowship in the Trinity. So I think the Trinity actually solves problems, theological problems, rather than creates them. Now, it doesn't mean everyone completely understands the Trinity or we understand it completely, but we ought to expect that. In fact, if God is infinite, and he is, we should expect an infinite God to be strange to us. It would be strange if an infinite God wasn't strange. C.S. Lewis, I think also in Mere Christianity, says, Muslims will claim, well, Islam is much more simple, right? You know, it's uh it's just one God, that's it. You don't have to worry about any anything else. We believe in one God too. We just think there's there's some plurality in the Godhead. Um, but Lewis goes on to say, well, how can we compete in simplicity for people who are making up religions? The truth is strange. I think he gives the illustration of a table. He says, if you're looking at a table, you, you just might look at the table and say, well, it's just, you know. Uh top and four legs, not very complicated. But if you said, if you started to look at the molecular structure of that table and go down to the subatomic or the atomic level, you're going to say, wow, this thing is really complicated. Yeah, the truth is often quite complicated. Um, and we can't compete with people who are making up religions. We're just reporting the truth as it has been revealed to us. Very good.
2: So, Dr. Kirk, I have a question for you about the hiddenness of God. And this is kind of a two-part question, Mm -hmm. specifically as it relates to those who claim they would believe if they had more direct evidence. That's part one. Part two is Mm -hmm. also regarding those believers who long to have a more tangible relationship with the Lord. Can Mm -hmm. you speak to those two points regarding the hiddenness of God?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, The Hiddenness of God. I think it was, um, I think probably the best sort of um, perspective on it was actually put forth by Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish philosopher, and he gave a story. He said, imagine that a prince um, in a jurisdiction sees a beautiful young woman who's a peasant in his jurisdiction from a distance and he immediately falls in love with her but he has a problem he knows that if he goes to her as the prince that she might just acquiesce to his power and just accept his proposal because she really wants to be the queen and she doesn't really love him for who he is so he goes to his father, the king, and he says, "Father, what should I do? I really love this woman, but if I go to her as the prince, I'm she's she may just acquiesce to my power. I'm never going to know if she really loves me. She's not going to know if she really loves me. This power is going to get in the way." So the father says to the king, or father says to the prince, "There's only one way, son. If you want this to happen, you've have to have you're going to have to renounce the throne and go to her as a peer. Go to her as a peasant." And so he does. He renounces the throne. He becomes a peasant himself. He goes into her village and he wins her as a peer. Then they know that their love is true. And this is kind of what Jesus does for us. He comes down from heaven. He adds humanity over his deity. And he comes to our level and wins us as a peer. He doesn't overpower us with his presence because God isn't just interested in the intellectual assent that God exists or that Jesus rose from the dead. That's simply belief that. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote that little, little book in the New Testament called... James. Called? James. James! Thank you. Thank you very much. Just want to make sure you guys are awake.
2: You can't um, hear them out there, probably.
0: Yes. So I James speak for said them. that even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. They know intellectually better than we do that God exists. But God just doesn't want a intellectual ascent. He wants a volitional love relationship. And so in order to be saved, you have to go from belief that to belief in. And to do that, you've got to, have a, you've got to have freedom. It can't be coerced. If God were to overpower us with his presence all the time, we'd have no real choice but to just acquiesce to his power. But God gives us enough freedom and enough evidence to know that he exists without compelling belief. So that's one answer to the hiddenness of God question. Uh, There's many others as well, but I just find that to be intuitively um, satisfying. That God is not going to overpower us with his presence. He's going to give us enough freedom and enough ambiguity to go our own way if we want to. But he's also going to give us enough evidence to trust in him if we truly do love him. I mean, by the way, we we know this, this difference between belief that and belief in from relationships. Like, for example, when I first met my wife 32 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said
2: yes.
0: (laughs) See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. So, yeah, God can um, overpower us with his presence, but he's not going to get the kind of relationship he wants from us. Anyway, hang on one second here for uh, a second. I have to look for something. Because C.S. Lewis, as always, has dealt with this problem himself. And he dealt with it in the first screw tape letter. And I I can't find it off my shelf right now, but he says something like this. He says, the indisputable, uh, meaning like an indisputable display of his power, is something that God can't use. He says, God can only woo. He cannot ravish. Because... If he ravishes, then he interferes with our free choice, and that's not the kind of relationship he's interested in anyway.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com. So
2: speaking to the, the tangibility of having a personal relationship with the Lord, would you say that even though God is spirit, there still is an internal testimony for the believer that you can have that, that relationship with the Almighty God, even though he's
0: not physical. Yeah, so I think there is a witness of the Holy Spirit, certainly. I think that witness does witness to our spirit that we are children of God. But that you can know Christianity is true that way, but as my friend William Lane Craig says, you can't show it that way, right? There's a difference between knowing right. Christianity is true and showing Christianity is true. Showing Christianity is true is giving the evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the scriptures are telling us the truth about what happened to Jesus and all that. That's belief that. But right. I can't, Show the witness of the Holy Spirit because it's internal to me. It's in it's it's in me. It's not something that uh, you can witness yourself. Well, you may be able to witness a life change, but um, you can't have that same sense if you're an unbeliever until you experience rebirth yourself.
2: Right. Very good. So, just a couple more questions. Uh, what about the the person who has never heard? or been able to hear the gospel message, are they still accountable for their sins on the day of judgment?
0: Yeah, excellent question. Um, In fact, let's say that, let's point out, first of all, that there's nobody out there who's never heard of God. Everybody knows there's a God. Why? Because of creation and conscience. God's written two books. He's written the Bible, obviously, but he's also written the book of nature. And that includes creation and conscience. So we reason from effect to cause. So we have an effect called creation. We know there must be a cause out there. We have an effect called the moral law written on our hearts. We know there must be a moral law giver. So everybody intuitively understands there's a creator God and we've fallen short of his moral standard. Now, there are many people who've never heard of Jesus. So what happens in that situation? And of course, Christians disagree over this as well. But let me give you what I think is the, the proper view here. Um, first of all, notice this is a moral question. Do you see that it's, somebody brings it up, is in some way um, bringing it up because he thinks, well, if Jesus is the only way, somehow God is unfair, unjust, not right. Well, again, the only way fairness could exist if is if God exists. So you're kind of using, you're stealing from God to argue against him. Um, what you could say is, you could say, okay, um, I believe in God, but I don't think it's the God of the Bible. Okay, make your case then. The problem is when you try and make your case, you run into the resurrection. How do you explain the resurrection if Jesus is not God? How do you explain the resurrection if there's some other God, some other theistic God other than Christianity? And as Gary will point out to you, the evidence for the resurrection is extremely strong. In fact, it takes more faith to not believe in it than to believe it actually occurred. But I just want to point out it's a moral question. And so many of the questions that you will get uh, about Christianity are moral. They're assuming a moral standard. So you want to always say, hey, you you realize you're assuming a moral standard here. Okay, now let's get back to what about those that have never heard. First of all, I think Christ's sacrifice is essential for salvation. Not because it's arbitrary. He doesn't just say, "I'm, I'm the only way because I said so. It's because... God is infinitely just, and he's also infinitely loving. The problem is, is if he's infinitely just, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. But he doesn't want to punish us because he's loving. So how does he stay just and love people at the same time? What he does is he punishes an innocent substitute in our place, which turns out to be himself, so he can remain just in the justifier, as Paul says in in Romans 3.26. Now you say, okay, I can, I can see that that's necessary philosophically and theologically. But we still run into the problem that a lot of people don't seem to hear the name. Are they damned forever because they don't hear the name? Two views on this. C.S. Lewis' view says people can come and be saved through the sacrifice of Christ even though they don't know the name. Like the Old Testament saints, right? The Old Testament saints didn't know the name of Jesus. They trusted in Yahweh and they were saved, okay? Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. But the New Testament seems to indicate that you have to know the name. In fact, if you look at um, Acts 10, Cornelius, he's already a believer, yet God sends Peter over there to tell him about Jesus. Why would he do that if he, if he could be saved any other way, right? Um, and, but, but then you say, wait, or, 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 let me back up. The Bible also says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you take a step toward creation and conscience, if you want to know who God is, the Bible indicates that God will get you the necessary information you need to be saved. Look, God wants people to be saved more than you and I do, right? He wants all to be saved. And so he, he's more concerned about it than we are. So he will get them the word either through a missionary or through a dream like many Muslims are getting now uh, or some other means if they don't know who Jesus is at this point. There's one other possibility, however, let me, let me point out that we all know that people, there are many people that hear the gospel and don't believe, right? Well, it could be the case that people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. That's possible, right? And if you go to Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the unbelievers on Mars Hill, he says something like this. I don't have it in front of me. It's a paraphrase. He says He says that God has so prearranged events that people are living at the exact times where they should live, so that people would find God and some would believe in him. In other words, it could be that God has so pre-arranged the world that the people who would accept the gospel are the people who hear it. And the people who never would have accepted the gospel never would have believed it, even if they had heard it. At the end of the day, we can say this. Since God is just, nobody's going to be treated unfairly. Everybody... Nope, there's nobody in the afterlife who's going to say, I should have been in heaven, or I should have been in hell. No one's going to say that. Well, right. I, we could all say we should have been in hell, but because of Christ's blood, we're not. But nobody who, who winds up in, in hell is going is to say, this was unfair. Amen.
2: Very good. One more question for you, Dr. Tarek. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We could spend the whole day with you. Uh, wanted you to just speak to the, the need for apologetics in the personal spiritual life of a believer. We know how effective apologetics can be in terms of witnessing to to unbelievers, to people. But speaking from personal experience, I can't tell you how many times uh, the Lord has used apologetics to be a life preserver for me, to draw me out of those waters of doubt Uh, back to Him. So is there anything that you can give in terms of practical Uh, application for apologetics in the life of a believer?
0: Yeah, well, a couple of questions that I like to ask people, first of all, who are not believers. I ask this on college campuses all the time when an atheist gets up to a microphone and displays a little bit of hostility. I'll always ask them this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And I've had atheists stand at a microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no, they know. I asked you if something were true, would you believe it? And you say, no. How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest. They're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of stupid, sinful things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And everybody out there watching this right now who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it, Right. Yeah, the only way to get true contentment and happiness is to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. So if you ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they hesitate or say no, the problem isn't here, the problem's here. So you could give them apologetics all day, and they don't care. In fact, I can't see the audience, so you guys are going to have to help me with this. I always survey audiences, and I want to survey you guys for just a minute. I want everybody in there who's a Christian right now to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian, whom you'd like to be a Christian. Has anybody got somebody? All right. Yes. yes. Here's my question. By the way, I can only see like empty chairs with this computer. Yeah, What's that's, the deal. Is there like are there other people in that
2: room? <laughs> that's the very back of the worship center. I promise. There's like a hundred thousand people in here.
0: Well, turn that turn that thing around so I can see people. What's going on?
2: Michael, he wants seeing, to like, see everybody. Empty chairs can say you turn reserved. that? Can you turn that around so he can see? And Is there's that possible? Nobody
0: reserved. There's nobody in those chairs. I see one person now. I'll Uh forget it. It's no Uh big deal. All right. I can't see, but you guys can tell me what the results of the, uh, you guys can tell me the results of the survey. Here's my question about the people, the person you're thinking of. Is the person you're thinking of, oh, hang on, we got a poor connection. Can you see me? Can you hear me? We can hear you. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity's true or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile? All right. How many people say the person I'm thinking of, uh, thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth? Raise your hand high. I can almost guarantee you if, if there's one or two, that's a lot. There's probably nobody with their hand up.
2: Yeah, there's very few. Very few.
0: Okay. Next question. How many, uh, or how many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? The majority. Yeah, of course, the majority. Why? People aren't interested in truth. They're interested in happiness. And so what can you do to get them interested in truth? You can love them. You can stay in their lives and maybe plant some seeds. And at one point, something's going to happen in their lives. And then your phone's going to ring and they're going to ask you a question because they're not going to call their atheist friend when something bad goes wrong. If something bad goes wrong, they're just going to say, well... This kind of stuff happens, right? So I would say, um, ask that question. And from a personal perspective, for me, I came to faith through evidence because I wanted to know if it was true. And it is very helpful if you have a doubt to take that doubt and drive it into the ground by uh, by trying to get answers to it. It not only helps you personally, but it helps other people who have questions. Amen. Oh, one last thing. If you would, download the free cross-examined app. Two words in the app store. Much of what we've talked about here today is in the quick answer section of the app. So download it, it's free. Two words, cross-examined. Awesome.
2: Dr. Turk, thank you so much for your time, sir. Let's give him a round of applause, everybody. On behalf of everybody here and me personally, thank you so much for your ministry. Yes, thank you. For your learning, your education, all the time, energy, effort. Remember you Remember to ask Gary
0: about snakes.
2: Thank you, sir. Have a good day. God bless.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Well, that concludes the second part of our Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek from the Engage Conference. Go to godsolutionshow.com to get this Q&A and all of our past interviews with numerous different people. And stay tuned. We have more great interviews coming up. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross very soon about the most recent update of his masterpiece. It's going to be a great interview, so stay tuned. We have a lot of great interviews coming up. Well, anyway, I want to bring this back to the gospel because the gospel really is true. The good news that we read in the Bible really is true, and frankly, it's the only real hope out there. Nobody else is even offering what Jesus offers, much less proving it by demonstrating their power over death. See, Jesus really did beat death, and then he said that he would give eternal life to all those who believe in him. He promised you that in John 6, 40. Look, if you're listening right now, I believe that you know the evidence for Christianity is solid, and that God is working on your heart and bringing you to a place of trusting him. If you've never taken that step to believe in him as Savior and Lord, why wait another day? You could do that right now. You could even verbalize that in prayer, saying, God— I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you, Jesus, died for my sins and rose again to give me eternal life. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says that the second you believe in him as Savior and Lord, something changes forever. He adopts you into his family. He makes you one of his own. And he guarantees you a life of meaning and purpose on this planet. He also guarantees you an eternity with him in heaven. You never have to fear death again. I hope that you took that step today if you haven't already, and if you have taken that step, I hope that you'll be very bold in sharing your faith with the people that you encounter day after day. They need to hear the gospel, and they need to hear the evidence for our faith. That's why this show is so important. I hope that you're sharing this with your friends, that you're letting people know about the God Solution Show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows. You could even uh, contact us at the contact form there. Anyway, I am thrilled that you're listening. I hope that you keep listening and that you keep letting others know about the show as well. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of the God Solution.